First Corinthians chapter 8. We're, we're looking at the second half of the chapter this morning. You, you might remember last Sunday I told you this is going to be kind of a two-part message. So idle food is the, is the title of the message. Uh, part one was last week. Part two is this week. And um, this is also the last message in First Corinthians that we will have until the new year. So um, Pastor Trey will be back with us next Sunday. The following Sunday, I think the 18th, um, Bruce Malone will be back with us. Uh, he comes once a year and shares a message on creation. Um, and so we've enjoyed him. Uh, he's been here many years in a row. And he'll be back again on the 18th. And then starting on the 25th, we're going to start a fall series, a sermon series that will take us all the way up through Thanksgiving. Um, and that's going to be uh, about the subject of overcoming hurdles to faithfulness. What are the things that get in our way or that can keep us from being faithful, from persevering? And so we're going to uh, have a series on that, a number of subjects. I think it's going to be a great series, a growing series for all of us. All the pastors will be involved in preaching that series. And then, uh, then we'll be at Thanksgiving. We'll have our praise service and go right into some more Advent, Christmas-themed messages toward the end of the year. So we'll pick up with 1 Corinthians 9 uh, in the new year. So this will be our last message this morning from 1 Corinthians for a little while. Well, we, and, we ended last Sunday with this beautiful confession of faith that's found in verses 4 through 6 about God the Father and Jesus his Son as being one God, one Lord. The statement that we, we, we noted was rooted in the very foundation of Jewish monotheism, the belief in one God that comes from Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And because of that truth, that foundational truth, Paul agreed with the Corinthians who had written to him as quoted in verse 1 when they said, all of us possess knowledge. Well, the question we needed to answer is what knowledge is it that we possess? Well, for example, in verse 4, the knowledge that an idol has no real existence. Again, agreeing with the Corinthians. The idol is nothing, just a hunk of stone, and so meat offered to that idol is nothing as well. In fact, it may be a rather delicious cut. And the Corinthians were they may be puffing themselves up with pride, reading these words, listening to these words being read. Ah, oh, the Apostle Paul, he's with us. He's with us. Um, although he, he did uh, warn them in verse 1 about getting puffed up with pride, exactly what probably happened and what had already been happening there. But then comes verse 7 in the middle of this text. And suddenly the topic is not so clear cut after all. In fact, the topic can become very complicated, as we'll see in chapters 9 and 10, all of which continue this line of thinking. So just a couple of points here this morning. You'll remember last week we saw that Paul agreed with the Corinthians about their assessment of what an idol is and therefore what the meat offered to an idol is. But now, look at verse, verses 7 and 8. The first point this morning, I can't eat this. I can't eat this. Verses 7 and 8. However, but, 
Remember that, that pattern that we see through 1 Corinthians? Yes, 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 yes. I agree, I agree, I agree. But, well, here it is. Here's the but in chapter 8. However, not all possess this knowledge. But some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol. And their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. Now that's a very important verse. Uh, But it, it must not be misunderstood. Imagine someone who has been converted um, out of a very strong, dedicated, pious, but yet pagan background, where they've been blessed, quote-unquote, by eating food that's come out of the back door of the pagan temple. Now they've become Christians. They believe not only that there is just one God after all, But even though they've been brought up in a context where there are thousands of Greek gods all around them, now they've come to see, they've come to believe, they've come to embrace there is just one true God. They're responsible before him. And this God has manifested himself to us in the person of his son. And we sinners are reconciled, brought back to God, not on the basis of all these pagan sacrifices, which we did, but on the basis of one sacrifice that has been offered once for all in the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Imagine that you're in a context like that. They've seen all of this, they recognize, they realize that if they're still participating in paganism in any way, then they're denying this very gospel that they've embraced. So they can't imagine, in their wildest dreams, that it's okay to go and eat food that's been offered to pagan idols. They're participating in paganism. That's how they view things. Now, from one perspective, because we all know that an idol is nothing, that's what's been confessed here back in verses 4 through 6, these people who have this sensitive conscience are wrong. We know they're wrong. They have what the apostle calls a weak conscience. Now, a weak conscience for the Apostle Paul, both here and also in Romans 14 that we looked at last Sunday, a weak conscience is not a conscience, as you may think from the word weak, it's not a conscience that ignores things or tries to get away with all kinds of sinful things. That's not what Paul means by a weak conscience. In fact, it's exactly the opposite. These people have a weak conscience because they think something is bad bad that really isn't that's a weak conscience they think that eating this food that's been offered to idols is bad so if they eat it they're going against their own conscience but their conscience is misinformed it's not 
sufficiently informed. Their conscience is telling them, stop, stop, stop. But their conscience is a tool and it's operating under wrong presuppositions. A weak conscience is a conscience that thinks something is bad, which according to the full light of Scripture is not really bad. But Paul does not want, and he says this in Romans 14, and he's making the point here as well in 1 Corinthians 8, Paul does not want people to act against their conscience. In fact, over in Romans 14, you all know the familiar verse, for whatever is not of faith is sin. And so Paul's making the point there, and he's making the point here. He does not want people to go against this tool that God has built into us, into who we are, this conscience. You know, little Jiminy Cricket, let your conscience be your guide, right? He's given all of us this tool, this conscience, and this conscience is a good thing, and it can help to stop us from doing things that are wrong. It prompts us, it alerts us, it flashes warning signs in our mind, in our heart, when we're about to do something that the conscience has been trained to believe is wrong. And Paul doesn't want people to act against their conscience because if you act against your conscience, then you begin to dull your conscience and its ability to work in your own mind and heart. And there may be some point in time when your conscience is going, don't do that, it's wrong, it's wrong, and you've dulled your conscience sufficiently by going against it that you ignore the warnings. And Paul doesn't want us to do that. So, does that make sense? So he wants you, Paul wants us ideally to have a better trained conscience. That's what he wants. With time, with more education, with more preaching and teaching in the local church, then these pagans will come to see that the gods are really nothing. And that it's okay to eat the meat offered to such idols. But right now, where they are, sincerely, they cannot eat the meat. They can't do it. It's not okay. Now, this might sound a little bit archaic to us today because we don't have a whole lot of these situations where we go to, the, go to Myers or Kroger or wherever you do your grocery shopping and, and see the, you know, uh, special, you know, idle meat, you know. Uh, we don't see that as much in the 21st century, at least here in the United States, uh, although it does exist in some cultures around the world still. But in almost every culture, there are similar kinds of things that go on. And they vary enormously from culture to culture. I want to I use one as an example, and, and it'll put some of you on edge, so just hang on, okay? Um, I want to I talk about one that was very strong here in the United States when I was growing up, still is in many places. Um, and then I want to suggest something that's important here. When I was growing up, in the circles that I was growing up in, um, conservative American Christians, Christians did not drink alcohol. They did not. It just was not done. And most of us could say from the scripture that there's nothing intrinsically wrong with alcohol as a substance. If Jesus turns water into wine in Cana of Galilee, there must not be anything 
wrong intrinsically with alcohol. But the heritage of many of us that have grown up in the church uh, in America was Christians don't drink alcohol, ever. Today, um, you'll probably have noticed that it's a lot more flexible in that area for good reasons and bad reasons, actually. Uh, And I know for a fact that there are people in our own church family who partake, and I know those who don't partake. And both may have very strong reasons for their conviction. But as long as the Christian was saying this, the drinking of alcohol by itself is not intrinsically good or bad. What's bad, according to the Scripture, that we know for sure, everyone agrees, drunkenness is bad. Drunkenness is bad. And if you, as a Christian, were to say, I know there's nothing intrinsically wrong. You can't get drunk. That's sin. But you still choose not to drink alcohol. Then there's no issue. But supposedly, suppose, suppose that you had come from a drunken background. Suppose that you had an alcoholic father or mother. Or supposing that you lived your life as a drunk for many years. And then you got converted. It might be the only way that you can handle this subject is to just reject all forms of alcohol itself completely. Now, we'll see that there's another side to this argument when we get to chapter 10. But it's a complicated issue. And what Paul does not want is for people who have a weak conscience that is, who think something is wrong, whether or not that thing is itself wrong, he does not want them to act against their conscience. So it's okay for some people with what Paul describes as a weaker conscience, sensitive conscience, to not eat the idol meats. It's okay for them not to do that. Some people, look at verse 7 and 8 again. Some people are so still accustomed to idols, when they eat sacrificial food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to a god. And since their conscience is weak, because they are still thinking in pagan terms, their conscience is defiled. But food does not commend us. Literally, that word means to bring us near to God. Food does not bring us near to God. We're no worse off if we do not eat. We're no better if we do. In other words, just because you and I have knowledge about these things, oh, yes, we know that an idol is nothing. The meat is nothing. Just because we may possess that knowledge does not make you any better, any more mature as a Christian. Which brings us to the last section of this chapter. There are those who say, I can't eat this. That's verses 7 and 8. For various reasons. Verses 9 to 13 Another response to this issue 
that Paul suggests is, I choose not to eat this. In some cases, Paul's going to teach us, it is better to avoid the practice, even though you don't think it's intrinsically wrong in and of itself. Look at verses 9 and following. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge, eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged, if his conscience is weak, to eat food offered to idols? In other words, somebody gets converted. They're three months into their Christian life. They've come from this pagan background. They see you, who have been a Christian for 20 years, getting a really good deal on rib steak at the temple restaurant. And they say, well, would you look at that? If he says it's all right to do it, it must be all right to do it. It's been offered to pagans, but, you know, he's doing it. It's got to be okay. That's what the word encouraged means in verse 10. Usually the word encourage is something that's positive, right? We encourage one another. In this case, the word encourage has more of a negative connotation. In fact, a better translation would be emboldened. They're emboldened to go against their conscience in following your example. And so, verse 11, listen to this. This is serious. Verse 11, by your knowledge, you're free. You have rights. By your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed. The brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak You sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. All right. Let me explain very emphatically what this does not mean. This is sometimes taken to mean that people who are offended by someone else's actions can control all the behavior in the church. Let's go back to the subject of alcohol. There are brothers and sisters who very sincerely believe that it was forbidden by Scripture for Christians to drink alcohol. They would say things like, Christ didn't turn the water into wine at Cana of Galilee. He turned it into grape juice. In fact, Just so you know, that has been such a widespread understanding among many Christians in America that this morning, later, we're going to have the Lord's table. And you know what's going to be in those cups? Grape juice. They would say that he turned it into grape juice. The problem with that argument is, and I'm not getting into an alcohol sermon today, but... 
The problem with that argument is in John chapter 2 and verse 10, you remember the story of Jesus at the Cana, the wedding in Cana? And he goes and he turns this water into whatever he turns it into, right? And they pass it out, and the master of the feast tastes it and says what? At most weddings, they serve the best wine first. And then, when the people have drunk freely... That's the verb in John chapter 2 and verse 10. It's the Greek verb, methuo. The master of the feast says, everyone serves the good wine first. When the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. So here's the problem. When people have drunk freely, methuo, they hand out the cheap stuff. Methuo means to be drunk. It's not something, something you can normally accomplish with grape juice. Now, hear me out. I'm not saying that Jesus advocated drunkenness. Far from that. I'm saying he changed the water into real wine. Something that if you drink enough of, you could get drunk on. And if you drank too much of that, you would become a drunk. And according to the scripture and all, even the Mosaic law, you would be in sin against God. But sometimes the argument will go this way. See if you've ever followed this. If you go and drink, not get drunk, that's sin across the board. If you go and drink, if you have a beer or if you have a glass of wine with your meal, whatever, you're offending me. And Scripture says, if you offend me, you're sinning against Christ. See the argument? Now, I'm sure nobody here would stoop to that sort of argument, but I've heard it many times over the years. My response to that argument is this. I'm very sorry to hear that you have such a weak conscience. Because... Those people have not understood weak conscience the same way as the Scripture teaches. They understand it to mean that I'm the guy with the weak conscience if I were to take uh, of an alcoholic beverage. It's never occurred to them in 1 Corinthians 8 in the context that it shows the weak conscience belongs to the person who thinks something is wrong even when it really isn't. Let me put it this way. If somebody comes along and says, you know, I'm wondering whether I should drink or not. I, you know, I come from a background of alcoholics. I just wonder, should I, should I drink or not? I realize that if I drink wine in that context... In front of that individual, I am leading them to sin. I'm encouraging them. I'm emboldening them to sin against their own conscience. Prompting them to drink against their own conscience. And Paul is saying, in such cases, I am perfectly happy to trim my rights for their sake. 
Now, supposing somebody comes up to me and says, as far as I'm concerned, you can't be a Christian unless you abstain completely from alcohol. I know Jesus died on the cross for our sins, and that's all important, but you can't really get to heaven unless you give up alcohol. My response in that case is, that is false teaching. Because I want to be absolutely clear that the only, only adequate basis for our acceptance before God on the last day at his throne is the cross of Jesus Christ, not our works. Now, the cross of Jesus Christ works itself out in changed character, doesn't it? So it's true to say, like Jesus says, by their fruit, you shall know them. So there are conduct, behavioral things, that demonstrate whether you are a Christian. But if by the fair reading of Scripture... Drinking wine or not drinking wine is not one of those things. Then don't try to cripple someone else's conscience because of your conservative approach to an issue. The word stumbling block in this text and stumble is used three times in the text. It's the Greek word skandalizo, where we get the word scandal from. It means to cause to sin, not just simply to cause someone to not like what you're doing. Don't scandalize your brother. Don't scandalize your sister in Christ. Don't do anything to cause them to sin against their conscience. All right, another another, uh, disclaimer. Hear me clearly this morning. I'm not seeking to advocate in this sermon for a position on drinking wine or alcohol, okay? That would be a whole other sermon, another time. I'm using the subject of alcohol as an illustration of how Christians treat one another. And the reason that it works to use alcohol in this kind of a discussion is because wine is specifically mentioned in Romans chapter 14, as one of these debatable issues. But it doesn't matter if it's about food, or drink, or art, or music, or the movies we watch. What you need to see here is that there are deeper issues at stake. The question First of all, is who's got the weak conscience? Now, obviously, in the long haul, people, and and by the way, I should say this. In case you're thinking this morning, well, obviously, I don't have the weak conscience. I've got the strong conscience. I've got freedom to do anything. Um, I think if we took about five minutes to examine your life, we would probably find there's an area somewhere in your life where you have a weak conscience in. Again, I'm not saying that weak consciences are better than strong consciences. All of us have areas where we are weak and where we need to 
train our consciences in a more biblical way so that we can respond to those consciences correctly and faithfully. But it doesn't matter if it's about food, art, drink, music, movies, whatever the issue is. What you have to see is there's deeper, deeper issues at stake. Paul wants people's consciences to be stronger. He does want us all to move to having better consciences. He wants us to have, all of us to have what he calls this knowledge in chapter 8, that an idol is nothing, has no real existence. On the other hand, he also wants Christians who have a strong conscience in one of these areas who really do see right and wrong according to the Scripture and are guided by that. Not by personal experiences, not by scientific polls or whatever. They see right and wrong according to Scripture. They're guided by that. He wants them to see something that it is not Christian. It is not following Christ to stand on your rights. If by standing on your rights, you are doing damage to other Christians. Paul says, you give up your rights for Jesus' sake. So that others are not hurt. Are not caused to sin. And that is a profound gospel responsibility. Do you see where this argument's going? Look at verse 12 again. Thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. That means if you're accustomed to having a glass of wine with your dinner and you've never got drunk in your life, you've never even got near the line, whatever that line is and however you find it, right? You've never even crossed that line, but you occasionally will have a glass of wine with your dinner or something like that. And you know that by inviting this friend, this Christian brother or sister into your home who has just been through rehab and putting a glass of wine in front of you and drinking it, you are going to very possibly destroy that person's conscience cause them to go against it and perhaps lead them into sin because when they when they lead when they leave your home and go down to the bar at the end of the next block they're not going to just drink a cup of wine with their meal they're going to sin you sin against Christ the Bible says. That either means you're sinning against Christ as he's represented in the church, which is his body, or perhaps you're sinning against Christ because you're sinning against his example. Did Christ stand on his rights? He's the Lord and the King of kings, and yet he's mocked by soldiers who put a crown of thorns on his head. He could have called 12 legions of angels to rescue him as he goes to the cross, the Bible says. But instead, he does not stand on his rights so that he can save wretched sinners like you and me. Those are gospel truths. So shall we stand on our rights? 
Shall we flaunt them in front of our brothers and sisters in the church? And I'm a Christian, right? The strong person in Corinth says, I know that the meat hasn't been affected. I can eat it if I please. Well, at the level of right and wrong, knowledge, that's correct. You can. But if you're following the example of Christ, you're also asking yourself, will I be doing damage to the church of Christ? Is it so important to stand on my rights when we serve a master who stood on none of his? How can I best serve my brother or sister in Christ? Jesus gave his life for my brother, and I'm not willing to change my diet for him? It's a stunning contrast. Our identity must not be bound up in our self-expression, in our expression of our freedom. It must be bound up in self-giving love, in self-sacrifice. The most entitled person in the universe gave up his rights for us. That's a pretty powerful example. I'm going to ask the praise team to return for our final songs. The leadership team, if they'll prepare for the Lord's table. And while these folks are moving, I just want to think about what the takeaways are here this morning. Notice the summary statement in verse 13. Therefore, therefore, here it is. If food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. I want to read just a a paragraph from a commentator who wrote on this verse. Listen, Listen to how he describes this verse. Interestingly, the word meat in this sentence, verse 13, is the generic word for animal flesh, not the specific term idle meat that has occurred previously in the passage. Paul is willing to forgo not only the specific practice of eating idle food, but also the eating of meat altogether, if that would be necessary to protect the weak from stumbling. The effect of this policy, of course, is that it places Paul himself, de facto, among the ranks of the weak. Thus, 1 Corinthians 8 must be read as a compelling invitation to the strong, quote-unquote, Corinthians to come over and join Paul at table with the weak. This invitation is far more urgent than any invitation to savor meat with their rich friends in the respectable world of Corinthian society, unquote. Here's the bottom line. Christians who faithfully follow the Lord Jesus gladly, gladly restrict their rights to do things that are not inherently bad in and of themselves simply because they love 
their weaker brothers and sisters. They don't want to harm them. They are more concerned about loving and fellowshipping and serving with them than defending their rights and their Christian liberties. And in this, they are following the Lord Jesus and living out the gospel. They are demonstrating Christ's love. That is what Paul's been getting at all through this chapter. Do you remember? Verse 1. Knowledge puffs up, but love, love builds up. In verse 3. It doesn't matter what knowledge you have, Corinthians. What matters is that you are known by God. That's the knowledge that matters. And that is evidenced by your love. By your love. I'll ask the brothers and sisters to come up. Um, We'll sing a a song here to focus ourselves on the work of the Lord Jesus. Then we'll come to the table and partake. Um, The song um, helps us to do exactly what what I'm suggesting, that we, we turn our eyes away from anything that distracts, anything that sidelines, anything that's unnecessary. And we focus it on the person of the Lord Jesus. For in the person of the Lord Jesus, we will find the example to follow that is always right. And we will see it even this morning in these symbols that we partake together. Let's stand together and we'll sing.